doing, church? Doing good? Good. You look great. So much orange on. You must be going hunting this afternoon. All right. Good luck in the woods. Um, this week, college football is going to be like Fight Club. You know what the number one rule of Fight Club and college football? You don't talk about it. All right. Here we go. God bless you and your ministry. Uh, Genesis chapter 25. Um, <clears throat> we're going to pick up. Uh, we're really in week four of a six or seven week series. I can't remember right now. Um, and you're, it's called Sovereign Legacy. And what we were talking about, what we have been talking about, we did three weeks, and last week we took a break, and Pastor Britt did an amazing job bringing the gospel, did he not? Amen. If you weren't here to hear that, you've got to listen to, to Pastor Britt. It was his, uh, his debut sermon here at the Church of 1122, and he just, he just crushed it, did an amazing job. Um, what we've been talking about is Sovereign Legacy. That, that word sovereign means that God is in charge. That nothing's over his head, that nothing's out of his, out of his hands. God has never been surprised. He's never once looked at your life and went, do what? Never, ever, ever. And only an almighty sovereign God could take the good decisions that you make and the awful, sinful, wretched, black-heartedness of you and me and work all those things together for his goodness, for his glory, and for your joy because he's sovereign. He is in charge. And that your life does not just exist in and of itself for your life, that you will leave a legacy that your life matters. It really does matter. And the things that you are doing right now will actually echo throughout eternity for a long, long time, generations upon generations upon generations. These things matter. And both of those things are true. The decisions that you make matter and no matter what, God is in control. And so the first week, we looked at, um, we looked at Abraham and we said above all else, Abraham could be described as a man of faith. And God called him to move out of the Ur of Chaldees and go to a place that God would tell him when he got there. And so Abraham packed up all his stuff and, and his family, and they, and they moved, and he was a man of faith. And then the second week, you'll remember, God had promised Abraham that he would be a father of many nations. And then in week two, for 24 years, you get this promise, and then 24 years of just nothing. And we talked about what happens, what do you do when God won't act the way you think he ought to act? Like, God, you made the promise. I didn't come you, to you with the, with the promise. You started this in me. And then just nothing for 24 years. Landed on me like a ton of bricks this very week um, in an elders' budget meeting. Now, <clears throat> in most churches, elders' budget meetings aren't the most spiritual moments of the church from what I hear. But honestly, in our elder budgets meetings, they're way different. And so this week... Uh, our CFO, Stacey Brown, is bringing our upcoming budget for next year, and we're reviewing this past year. And first of all, there's a lot of hugs and high fives because from that sermon in September, when, we, when I preached on the preeminence of Christ, the fact that God is first, and because God is first and gave us his best, then, then we respond by first giving our best back to him, and we talked about first fruits offering. From that moment on, the generosity in this church has just shifted. I mean, it's just different now. And so when you have that kind, when you're celebrating um, that kind of faithfulness of God and his people in those meetings, it's awesome, especially when you're talking about where God's leading us for the future. But then at the end of, the, of that, that part of our meeting, the elders gathered around Stacy Brown to lay hands on her. And this is what landed on me. <clears throat> the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And as you look through that week two about the timing of God, um, and, and the same thing's true in your life, it's often by grace that God only allows us to see just a little ways down the road. 
Because if you could see all the way to the end, if God did not allow you to walk through the pain and the suffering that you may be going through now, and you could see all the way down to the end of the road, then it would not require you to walk by faith because you could just see the end and be like, oh, sweet, it is going to work out for me. And it wouldn't require faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so that was what was happening with, with the promised son to Abraham. And here's why it landed on me with Stacy Brown. We gather around Stacy, the elders do. We lay our hands on her to commission her as a missionary to China, not for a lifetime, but just for three weeks. And also, we're not commissioning her to go be a missionary in China for a nation, but for one kid, her kid, because she and Craig are going to adopt Mason Brown um, next month in China. Now, here's what, here's what landed on me. If God would have allowed her to see that moment back when Stacy and Craig could not conceive and they were saying, why God, why God, why God? If he didn't allow them to go through that pain and pruning back then, then they would not be able to experience the glorious redemption of adoption today. Do you see how that works? That it's by faith that we please God. And so some of you, that's just where you are. That God's miracle in your life is just around the next turn. And it's actually by grace that he can't, that he won't allow you to see around that turn. That was week two. And then the third week, we talked about Abraham and Isaac. And um, if you're familiar, if you've been around Bible study for a while, maybe you've heard of that story. But the point of Abraham and Isaac is not that God's gonna come to you and ask you to give up the thing that means the most to you. In fact, it's that God loves you so much that he gave up what was most important to him. He sent his only begotten son to be a substitutionary atonement or an atoning sacrifice for you and me. And so this week, we're going to pick back up with Sovereign Legacy. And so we're kind of finished with Abraham. And now we're going to talk about Abraham's son and grandson and great-grandson, basically now through through Thanksgiving. So if you got your Bibles, grab them, Genesis chapter 25. And we're going to pick it up in verse 19. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Verse 22. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Those of you who have been pregnant, you felt that way before. You're like, Are there two nations in here? Holy, what is happening? For some of you, it looked that way, all right? Like, what? Oh, you having a litter? So, sorry, you look great. It's beautiful, okay? (laughs) Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. That, That prophecy will make sense in a little while. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, And so they called his name Esau, 26. And afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, see, back in biblical times, names mattered. Names mattered. They were prophetic. So so it's more like a nickname are today, right? Like if you're really good at sports, they might call you sport. Or if you can play a horn, they'll call you chops. Or if you're a little thin guy, they might call you slim. Or just to make fun of you, if you're a real big guy, they might call you slim just to remind you of what you're not. Whatever it is, but it's more like nicknames, okay? It's not like kind of the way, we just give names because we think they sound great. But then names mattered. 
And so the name Esau in Hebrew, it literally means hairy. That's just what the name means. So the baby comes out and they look at it and he's covered in hair. And it was, uh, it was between Esau and Chewbacca. They didn't know Chewbacca yet. So they, they went with Esau. That's what they did. Right. And then when Jacob is born, he's literally grasping the heel of his brother because he is trying to, he's trying to, you know, pass him in turn four coming through the birth canal. But this is not Daytona. You can't go too wide during the birth process. So they know that he's trying to be in first place. And the reason is because to be the firstborn son carried a whole lot of weight, particularly in this time. A whole lot of weight. And so he was trying to essentially cut in line. And that's what the name Jacob means. If your name's Jacob, my apologies. Your name means um, heel grabber or deceitful one. All right? So... But don't feel too bad. You know what Joby means? Afflicted. That's what it means. It's like my dad, the afflicted one. That, thanks, Dad. <laughs> Apparently, we didn't have a baby name book either at my house growing up. But names matter. These, these men are going to grow into what their names are. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau, or Harry, Esau was a skillful hunter. All right, I like him already. A man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. You know what that meant? See, Esau was a stud. He liked to hunt, probably played football. He's probably the homecoming king. Um, Chicks dug hair back in the day. All right, that's what Esau was. It's what he did. You'll find out in the next next verse that, that his dad really liked Esau. And you're not supposed to have favorites, but his dad's favorite was his. And then Jacob was a quiet man, and he hung out in the tents, and he liked to cook. And guess who hung out in the tents? The women. So this is what little, frail uh, Jacob, he probably had, you know, skinny jeans and a scoop neck t-shirt and like a scarf in July. Okay, that's kind of, and if that's you, we're a movement for all people, all right? But it should probably work out. So that's him. They're just hanging out, you know, cooking stew and watching like Real Housewives of Bethlehem or whatever they did back in the day. That's the brothers that you got going on here, Okay. Verse 28, and Isaac, the dad, loved Esau because he ate of his game. I like Esau. Esau would like Archer. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, because that's what he did, Esau came in from the field, because that's what he did. He's out hunting, probably elk hunting, okay, or red stag, because it's awesome. Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat of some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Now, I hate to, uh, you know, spoiler alert here, but what's going to happen is Esau is going to trade what is most important to him for something that is temporary. That's what he's going to do. And if you're familiar with Bible study, you, you've heard this, this story before. And if you're brand new to Bible study, you'll fit right in to 1122. So let me just, let me just tell you, that, that's what Esau is going to do. And here's why. A big part of what this, this text is all about is the fact that you and I are just a big ball of appetites. We are. That you and I are just a big ball of appetites. And if we're not careful, when those appetites get too big, then they can overtake every other area of our lives. And in regards to the appetites that you and I have, one of the most dangerous places in the world to be is to say, I am exhausted. 
Because the more exhausted you get, not just at a physical level, people ought to work hard and get tired, but when you get exhausted at the soul level, then those appetites and the temporary things of this world seem to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and you think that they will fully and finally satisfy. And when they do, then the devil has you right where he wants you. You see, every one of us, we have appetites. We're just a big ball of appetites. I am a grown man. I have appetites, okay? I have many, many appetites. I have appetites for food. I have an appetite for sex. All right, so we men have at least two appetites that are there, okay? In fact, that's a marriage series right there. Feed him, nap him, make out with him, happily ever after, the end. It's a different sermon. But we all, we all have appetites. And if you remember, if you were here the first night of Saturated, what Pastor Stovall helped unpack for us is this, is that you were created by God and for God. And because of that, you don't just have a soul, but you are a soul. And because God is eternal, you have these eternal longings deep in your soul. And so your soul can never be satisfied. It's why it wants and it wants and it wants and it's, and it wants. Because Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in your heart. In fact, some of you are here and you're so disappointed in your current state of existence because you've tried to fill your insatiable appetite of your soul with the things of this world. You see, we all have appetites. And appetites aren't, aren't a bad thing. In fact, appetites are given by God and twisted by the enemy. Appetites are given by God on purpose for his glory. For, in order that we would worship him, God has given us appetites. And then the enemy comes along and he twists them. For example, God has given us the appetite for food. That's God's idea. You see, a part of it is so that every single day, you and I would be reminded when we get hungry that we cannot sustain ourselves, that we need a creator, that we are dependent upon God to provide us with food so that we could legitimately pray, Father, give us this day our daily bread. It's supposed to actually cause us to lean into him the problem, though, is then the enemy comes along and twists it. See, do you, do you guys realize um, <clears throat> that the bone-in ribeye was God's idea? Do you realize that? And the point of it is not the bone-in ribeye. You get it? See, did you realize that a non-Christian, if you're not a Christian here today, I've got horrible news for you. You can't enjoy the steak like I can because you think it's about the steak. See, you go to the restaurant, you order the steak, you cut into it, you put it in your mouth, you eat it. And if it terminates on the steak, then it's idolatry. All you've got is a piece of cow. But if you know God, it's different. You walk in, you sit down, you order the steak, and, and then just think about how good our God is that he has created this thing. That just this, I mean, have you ever looked at a cow and said, I bet the back half of that would be amazing? No! But then somehow God takes that when it's cooked to perfection and brought to you and anything above medium rare, we should probably have a conversation about, okay? That's right, brother. Amen. Amen. Okay? And you cook in there. If you hear a moo, that's like glory. That's what that means. You understand? And you put it in your mouth and God's giving you these taste buds to interact with the bone-in ribeye. And then what is supposed to happen is it doesn't terminate on itself, but it stirs in you worship. 
that you would say, God, thank you so much that we live in this country. We can just walk into a restaurant, sit down, pick something off a menu. Somebody brings it to us and then I get to eat it. And not only is it awesome when I eat it, but it also fills me. And I can say, bless his holy name. All that it was within me, bless his holy name. And that is worship. That's how God designed it. You see, it's just an appetite. And then God meets that appetite and we worship him. And then the enemy comes along. The enemy comes along. And he just twists it. And then you get things like eating disorder or gluttony. Both sin. One is more like a disease as a result of sin. And the other is just about pure selfishness. That it's all about me. You see how God gives the appetite and then the enemy twists it? Or my favorite one to talk about is sex. The sex is an appetite that God gave you. If you're still on the fence about God, wondering if he's good or not, he invented sex. The end. End of argument. He's a good God. Sometime before, there was not, and then he went, I have an idea, and it was good. Do you understand? That that's God's idea, that God gives the gift of sex between one man and one woman in, in one covenant of marriage for one lifetime. That was his idea, that we would experience an intimacy that outside of that you cannot experience. And then what happens is the enemy comes along and takes that good idea and begins to twist it. And in our current culture, tries to make it like a God idea, like it's the most important thing in our world. And then the enemy comes along, and, and, and in his twist, he separates intimacy from physical activity. That's why every time you go to Publix to try to get that steak, to bring it home, to grill it, to worship God, and you're standing in the checkout aisle, every cover of the magazine is about techniques. That's why. And it does not fully and finally satisfy and so Cosmo's like, 100 ways to please a man. Look, there's three. I don't know what 97 other things are they're doing. It's not it. The only way to really please your man is in intimacy when the two become one. 100 things to do with a lollipop. Don't get the lollipop. You've got to surrender to Jesus and do with the appetites what he has called and commanded you to do. And then God gives the appetite. The enemy twists it. Or wine. It's a gift from God. I use the example of wine to make our Catholics feel at home and our Baptists really nervous. That's why I do that. <laughs> okay? Listen, to, here's, how, here's how the psalmist David says in, in 104, 14 and 15. He says this, God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, that stakes, and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. In other words, God, you not only have give, given us the appetite, but you and you alone provide, um, provide that which would satisfy that appetite. Only in you. And then, do you know wine? God invented wine for celebration. And then the enemy comes along and twists it, and you get alcoholism. You get that? And so here's Esau, and he's exhausted. And when we get exhausted, our appetites grow and grow and grow and grow. And every single one of us is just a big ball of appetite. Now, your appetite and my appetites, they only have two words in all of their vocabulary. Now and more. And that is it. An appetite cannot be reasoned with. An appetite only says now and more. And think about it. <laughs> think about it. That's why when you go to a restaurant, they try to sell you an appetizer, right? How many of you have ever ordered appetizers? We do this every single time we go out. I like, I like salty foods more than sweets, and Gretchen's like sweets more than salty foods, so we always order 
enough appetizers to really be the whole meal in every other country of the world. Do you ever do this? And you order them, and they bring the appetizers. And you order them because they come so fast, and they come first, and they're, they're bite-sized. So how many calories could that have? If you can pick it all up in your one hand, and we eat it. And then after the appetizer and before the ribeye, I'm like, I'm stuffed. I think we could have just made a whole meal out of that. Everybody agrees with that cognitively. And then the meal comes, and you go, well, you better eat this. Don't you? And then you just eat and eat and eat and eat, and you think, I am about to bust. I can't have another bite. You want a dessert menu? Well, she does, and I don't want her to feel left out, so bring it. <laughs> That's why. And then the truth is, the truth is that you'll never be satisfied by the things of this world. C.S. Lewis, my favorite author, says this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And so, Esau comes in. He says, I am exhausted. I am exhausted. And so he wants some of that stew. So I'm going to start over in 29 again. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in front of the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Verse 31, and Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright now. Now, when you look at that, you think, well, that's the most ridiculous trade I've ever seen in my life. Who in the world would even think about that, all right? Well, here's, here's something uh, that you've got to know about and you only know about it if you have a sibling. Um, I'm the oldest brother. I have a younger brother named Russ. He's about three and a half years younger than me. We're really, really close. And uh, how many of you are a younger brother? A younger brother. This probably works for Sister Sue. Okay, good. Y'all are the deceitful ones. So uh, here's, here's how this works. <clears throat> Especially like when you're young, you're growing up together. Very rarely does the younger brother need the older brother. Okay? Very rarely does the younger brother need the... the well, excuse me. Very rarely does the older brother need the younger brother. The younger brother almost always needs the older brother, okay? The older brother doesn't need clothes. The younger brother does. The older brother doesn't need a ride. The younger brother does. That's just how it goes. So that's just kind of, I don't know, how God designed it. Now, occasionally, occasionally, that relationship is inverted, and there will be times when the older brother will come to the younger brother and say, I need something from you. And there is this secret society of deceitful younger brothers that have gathered all throughout eternity. And they have let each other know, since this occasion doesn't often happen, then uh, whatever you do, don't waste the opportunity. So regardless of the ask from your older brother, you better get all of it that you can. You better leverage it for everything you can because it may never happen again. So when I was 16 years old... And I'd walk into my brother's room, and he's 13 and a half, and I'd say, hey, Russ, uh, can I borrow a pen? He said, if I can borrow your truck for the weekend. I'd say, bro, you don't even have a license. He'd go, well, you don't have my pen. That's how it would go. See how it works? You're going to leverage this to the maximum amount of whatever, whatever you can get. And so Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. And you got to think for a second, who in the world would do that? I mean, especially for a long time, as I would read through this text, I would think, this doesn't even make sense to me. Who would sell what is most important to them, what has lifelong, life-lasting impact, not just on you, but your children and their children and their children? Who would sell something so important and so valuable for something so temporary and so silly, like red lentil stew? It doesn't even sound that good. At least give me some deer chili or something, but red lentil stew... Who would do that? Every single one of us. It just depends on what the stew is. 
That's just the truth. And so, verse 32, here's what Esau says. Verse 32, Esau said, I am about to die. To which, if I could just step in right here, I would just say, Esau, no, you are not. You are not about to die. I mean, 40 minutes ago, you're chasing red stag with a longbow around the hills of, of wherever you are, okay? You are not about to die. Have you ever noticed that as your appetites begin to grow and at the soul level, when you really get exhausted, you and I can get pretty dramatic about our own story, can't we? I mean, we can begin to try to paint our situation into this story like you and I are the only person who's ever had the struggle that you're walking through right now. I mean, I hear it all the time. Oh, pastor, you just don't understand my story. I am just so lonely. I'm about to die. No, you're not. People have been lonely. for. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying you don't actually feel like you're going to die, but the reality is, regardless of what you feel like, you're not actually about to die. Or you look at your financial situation and think you're the only person that's ever been there. Or the pain that you're going through and you think, oh, this is unique. I know what God says about how I'm supposed to conduct my life. But that's for all of those other people that aren't in my situation. If you could just give me the mic for one minute and let, every, and let me explain to everybody in ten minutes, this is my current situation, then they would all give me a pass. So don't you think God will give me a pass too? Look, be careful. When you catch yourself noticing that your appetites for red stew are growing and growing and growing, and you and I are beginning to be, if you're honest, and I know it's hard to be honest with yourself, but somebody's got to, if you begin to notice, you know what, I think I'm being a little dramatic here. I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying there's not real pain that you're walking through, but when you think your situation is unique, watch out. Because you're unique just like everybody else. And that's true. Now, sociologists and marketers know exactly what this is. I mean, they get paid big bucks to study these kind of emotional reactions to current situations. And in fact, they study the chemical processes in our brains. They they understand our psychology and our sociology so that they can sell us stuff that we really don't need. Did you know one one of these phenomenons that they talk about is this. It's called impact bias. Impact bias. Impact bias occurs when we overestimate the length of impact of an emotional event. Impact bias occurs when we overestimate the length of impact of an emotional event. In other words, impact bias is that moment when you think that thing is going to do more for you than that thing can do for you. And we all go through it. Every single one of us go through it. How many of you have ever looked at something and thought, once I buy this, then I will be fully and finally satisfied? It's what almost every commercial is based on, right? Like, aren't, don't you look at it and go, how have I ever survived without a sham wow? I've just been using regular washcloths. No wonder my life is wretched, all right? Or I've got a regular water hose that just tangles up. What about this magical hose that just grows and shrinks? Like, right? Have you ever, you've, you've done that. It's called impact bias. It's why you have buyer's remorse, because you look at that thing and you go, finally, right? And listen, ladies, you ever see like um, razor commercials? Like, remember the Ep- if you're old enough to remember the Epa lady? I remember as a man not needing it and looking at it going, who in the world would buy a thing that plucked the hair out of your legs? It was about impact bias because they would start with the problem. You ever try to shave your legs like old people used to do? And it's like a lady shaving with a rake. She's about to bleed out in the shower. Ah, now the Epa lady, bring, you think. There's something wrong with that person, okay? Same thing happens to men. Same thing. 
Cut a man loose in Home Depot. He's walking through and he sees it and he's like, I don't even know how I survived without this. I didn't know I needed it until I saw it. Now I have to have it. That's impact bias. It's why Taco Bell is still in existence. I mean, right now, does Taco Bell sound good to anybody right now? No. No, you think, like, who would ever? But at 2 o'clock in the morning, when you are driving home, and you see that glorious sign saying, open late, and you hear French horns, you know, you're like, this is it. And then you pull up to the drive-thru and look at the, look at the little menu, and you think, man, your photographer is amazing. I've never seen a chalupa look like that, but my whole life, I'll take the double, double-decker chalupa. And you think this is going to be awesome. And then in less than one hour, you come to realize impact bias. This is not awesome. We've all been there. That's what's happened to Esau. He thinks the red stew is going to cure his life. Now, there's another thing called focalism. You know what focalism is? Focalism is, um, is that as that appetite grows... And, and, and you begin to turn your eyes to it and everything else fades away. It's what happened that day you decided that you were going to buy a new car. Whether it was new to you or brand new, the day you decided, you know what, I'm going to buy a new car. Focalism begins to take place. You know the day before that your car was fine? Do you remember that? Like yesterday my car was fine. It didn't bother me. The French fries in the back didn't bother me. You know, the, the, the leather that needs to be repaired didn't bother me. The little, like, code I had to go through to get my radio stations to change, that didn't matter, okay? The fact that my window didn't roll down and I would go through the drive-thru and it'd get a little awkward, you got to hand it up here. You know, what? it didn't bother you. But the moment you decide, this car's done, I need a new one, then you get in your car and be like, this thing is awful. I mean, this thing is awful. And you begin to rationalize as you put your children in. It's probably unsafe. I'm probably an unfit parent. For the sake of sovereign legacy, I've got to get a new car. And you ever notice this too? Like, you didn't even know Dodge came out with a new Durango until you decided you wanted one. Then every stop sign you're out, you're like, there's one, and there's one, and there's one. And they're just calling to you, drive me, drive me. Or guys, you experienced focalism in the ninth grade? You remember when you locked eyes on her? And you fell head over heels in love. And you would be at your locker and you would turn to walk to class and she just stepped out of science class. And when you saw her, everything else around grew strangely dim. A spotlight went on her. Somehow, mysteriously, her hair began to blow in the mythical wind that was happening. And you heard the words of Dreamweaver playing in your mind. And that's all you could see. She didn't even know your name. You can remember what she smells like from 30 years ago. Right? She don't know you. She still won't accept your friend request on Facebook. All right? That is focalism. <laughs> That's what's happening right here, right now. Right here, right now. That Esau walks in. He's got some impact bias. He is thinking, this red stew will cure all of my problems. He begins to, to be very dramatic about his current situation. He never occurs to him. You know, but a lot of people get hungry. A lot of people get tired. But in fact, he says, if I could just get this one temporary fix right now, then that will answer all of my problems. So in 32, Esau says, I'm about to die, which he's not. Of what use is a birthright to me? What? Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, if I could hit pause on what's going on here and and get in the flux capacitor and jump back to time and walk into the tent, 
where they're having this conversation. And if I could step into Esau's world for just a minute and just say, hey, Esau, 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 whoa, 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 time out, time out. Can we talk for a second, bro? Of, of, what, of what worth is a birthright to you? Esau, you're having an identity crisis here, bro. You're having an identity crisis. You are the firstborn son. That you, by God has anointed you with a birthright. Don't forget who you are. That's what you're doing right now. You are forgetting who you are and whose you are. You see, a birthright was a big deal. It was the biggest deal in this society. That if you had the birthright, if you were the legitimate firstborn son, that when your dad passed away, you got two-thirds of his inheritance, and then the rest of the family got to squabble over the one-third. And even in their squabbles, you were appointed and anointed with the authority to make the decisions over their squabbles. That means that the whole family would answer to you. And I would just say to him, hey, Esau, listen, listen, listen. If you, listen, this, this red stew might look okay now, but if you can just hang in there for a little while, bro, you can have all the stew you want. You can have red stew for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and late night as much as you want. If you can just delay the gratification and get what is coming to you, which is the birthright, this is a big deal. This follows all the way through to the New Testament also. You remember when Jesus was baptized? His first cousin, John the baptizer, baptizes him. And when Jesus comes out of the water, remember what happens? That the heavens part and God the Father says out loud for everybody to hear, behold my son with whom I am well pleased. And then the, and then the spirit like a dove is, descends upon Jesus. You know what? God the Father was giving God the son the birthright. He's like, this is my, all that I have is his. Y'all should listen to him. Or um, at the Last Supper, the Bible says, Jesus, knowing that all authority under heaven and on earth had been given unto him, he gets up and he washes his disciples' feet. That's birthright language. Or in the Great Commission, when Jesus, same words, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, that's birthright language. Do you know that you and I as Christians are adopted as sons, as firstborn sons of God? That means that you and I have a birthright. And so I would step into Esau and say, Esau, Esau, listen, listen, bro. When you ask this question of what use is a birthright to me, man, this is a big deal for you just in the next few years. I mean, it's cash and prizes and authority and power and anointing of God. This matters. And Esau, I know very few of us can like look past our nose, but did you know that the decisions that you make today, Esau, they, they have a lasting legacy with your children and their children and their children and on and on and on? Esau, I know you don't know this, but one day they'll teach it to you in Sunday school that you and your brother are all going to die, and then the next generation to come, that, that generation is going to go and be a slave nation in Egypt. And then the people in Egypt, they're going to cry out to God because they're under the oppressive thumb of this evil guy named Pharaoh. And there's this leader, one of the greatest leaders in the history of humankind named Moses that God's going to call and going to raise up. And the way that God is going to call and raise up Moses is this, that one day Moses is going to be shepherding his flocks out in the wilderness and Moses is going to see this burning bush and God is going to speak to Moses in the burning bush. And here's how God is going to introduce himself to Moses, this great leader that's to come after you. God's going to come to Moses and say, I am the God of your fathers. Moses, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Esau. It depends on what you do in this next few minutes as you make a decision. 
Because if you trade in your birthright for this stinking red stew, then it's going to change forever. And God Almighty is going to begin to introduce himself to people as, as the God of Abraham and Isaac and your deceitful younger brother, Jacob. Oh, and it gets worse than that. That, that your group of brothers is going to turn into 12 tribes. That 12 tribes is going to turn into a nation. And out of that nation, the promise that, you're, that God gave to your granddad, Abraham, that, that a blessing would come from the seed of Abraham to bless all the nations from that nation of Israel, that promised blessing, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's going to come from that bloodline. And one day, thousands of years from now, the Christ is going to come, he's going to live, he's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected. And when he's living, he's going to gather together 12, 12 disciples. And one of those disciples is this guy named Matthew. And Matthew, one day, thousands of years from now, he saw Matthew's going to write a book, a best-selling book, one of the best-selling books or the best-selling book in the history of all humanity. And they're going to put Matthew's volume within the best-selling book. And Matthew was an incredible writer, not, a great, not very creative with the title, so he just named it Matthew. And here's how it's going to start. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of, and whether he puts Esau or Jacob hangs in the balance right now. You go for the stew, and for the rest of human history, it's going to say, and Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, not Esau. So when you ask this question, Esau, what is a birthright to me? You have no idea what hangs in the balance, brother. So you choose wisely. Verse 32 that's just what I'd tell him if he would have ears to hear me when I was there. Verse 33, and Jacob said, swear to me now. And he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And again, at first reading, like if you don't take this seriously, you just look at that and you go, who would do that? I mean, who would trade all of that, that sovereign legacy for one little bowl of stew? And you know it, and I know it, every single one of us have a propensity to trade in that which can last forever. The purposes and the plans of God. The peace of Christ that he promises to us. Every single one of us in this room have a propensity to trade those things in. For some temporary bowl of stew. The real question is just this. So what's your stew? What's your stew? When you and I begin to realize that, that the enemy is an amazing bass fisherman, it'll help. You know what he does? He just takes that lure and he throws it out there in front of you and he says, oh, you don't like that stew? Let me clip that one off. Let me try another one. And he throws another one in front of you until you get to the point where you go, ooh, that stew smells good. And when any time we take the temporary things of this world and treat them as if they are of eternal significance, be careful. Now, anytime you talk about this kind of thing, <clears throat> the places that most church goes are, are the unacceptable stew, sex, drug, and rock and roll, Okay? But it is true, there are some of you right now, and instead of trusting in the peace of Christ, you're trusting in the pipe to look for that momentary satisfaction. And it's stew. And I'm telling you, you are trading in what God has for you because you're going for the temporary. That's why some of you, you're never going to find what you're looking for at the bottom of that bottle. It's just not there. It's stew. Now, some of you are shaking your heads right now, and some of you are saying, ouch. Let me just say this to all of us. You ever notice how easy it is to see everybody else's stew? 
but your stew smells sweet. You ever notice that? That some of you, some of you are trading in actual intimacy with a real live wife for pictures of some naked girl you're never going to meet. And you're trading it in every single time. And in this moment, it seems ridiculous. But in that moment, when you're one click away, it just overtakes. And what's happening is you're sitting down with a picture. And meanwhile, you've got your real wife in the next room. And some of you, even to that, you go, oh, I'm not married, okay? Then you, if you're going for the stew of pornography, you're just training yourself to never be able to be intimate with her. Never. And it's stew. Now, it's easy to point out some of the unacceptable ones. But then in our world, in our kind of cultural Christianity, there's a lot of acceptable stew. But it's still temporary. Let me tell you one that I can, have a, I can tend to struggle with. For me, the applause of man. The applause of man. You know, I, I want to be, I'm, and I'm not even super concerned like if you like me, I just want you to be impressed. That's really what it is. I got a small group of people and I think they really like me, all right? Some of them I pay, so maybe they don't, but they tell me they do. <laughs> and so every week, like tomorrow morning when I go get in the tree stand and I dig through the text and I have a decision to make, am I gonna say what's popular or am I gonna just preach what God has commanded and called me to preach regardless of what happens to attendance? Because I'm telling you, I don't, I don't know an honest preacher that isn't affected by if his church is growing or not growing. Because I am. I am. And it is, a, it is a willful decision for me every time before I preach to preach the gospel to myself and know that my identity is not in your emails, but it's in Christ's death and resurrection. And that's not easy. It's not easy. Same thing for you. The applause of man is a stew. You know when it hit me like a ton of bricks is when I went to my 10-year high school reunion. You ever been to that thing? Walk in that room and be like, what happened to everyone else? All right? <laughs> That's why you got to have pictures on the name tags because you're like, you're, oh, wow, hi. <laughs> How are you? You know, people change. And all I could think about is I used to really care what they think. Right? These bald-headed fat people. I used to care so much about what they think. Do you think the men and women sitting around you right now are going to be any different in 10 years? You're not even going to know most of the same people. And yet there are times you know God has called you to do something. And yet you're, you and I look for the applause of man instead of the approval of God. Or some of your stew is safety. Safety. That you are going to live your entire life in the safety of a five-point harness and never step out and actually do what God has called you to do. For some of you, it's as simple as you know he's called you to go on our most dangerous mission trips and you're afraid and fear does not come from God and you're lapping up the stew and you've made all of these reasons why it's okay. For some of you, it's stuff that God has called you to be irrationally generous. I mean, he has blessed you in ridiculous ways financially. And instead of just being irrationally generous, you think, oh, you know what, I think I'm going to go for more stuff. Even though it's yet to satisfy you. And the evidence that it can't satisfy you is that you want more stuff. I'm telling you, the clothes that you hate that you take off in the dressing room to put on the clothes that you love are gonna become the clothes that you hate so you can get more clothes that you love. That's just how it goes. Some of you just go for money and you're so dumb, you don't even get stuff with it. If you're gonna hoard up money, at least get cool stuff, all right? Money's just a number on an account. It's not even real anymore, all right? I don't know how it works. Ask a banker, it's crazy. And you're going for that instead of what God has called you to. For some of you, 
It's this, this kind of um, American evangelicalism. And here's what's crazy. You're trading in activities at church, and that's what you're taking instead of a growing relationship with Jesus. And you don't have a time to have a relationship with Jesus because you've got too much church stuff going on. Maybe you just need to stop and be still with him for a little bit. Here's the thing. I can't tell you what your stew is. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says, um, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Here's what I know. Sometimes stew isn't sin unless you make it sinful. It just hinders our relationship with Jesus. There's nothing in and of itself wrong with food, sex, wine, TV, sleep, whatever it is, unless it's hindering you from your birthright. So sometimes it's just stuff that hinders, and sometimes it's sin that so easily entangles. And, and, and quite honestly, you are the only one that can answer the question, what's your stew? What's your stew? And if you're honest, look, if you're not going to be honest, that's fine. The fake you's doing just fine. The fake you's doing just fine. Hold on to your secret sin. You look great. We'll see you next week. You'll look great next, next week too, okay? But when you get to the point, when you get to the point where you're willing to admit that you've got some stew, and here's one of those brilliant things I've ever said. I've never seen one person write this down. You ready for this? Here's the crazy thing about temptation. It's tempting. Write it down. Because it's true. And we're all tempted by something. We all have some stew. And to act like the stew that you want to eat is not appetizing to you is the best lie the enemy will ever sell you. When you get to the place where you go, I shouldn't want it because I still want it. And I love you, Jesus. And I know you're more than enough. But even in that, I want the stew. When you get to, when you get to be honest with Jesus, that's when he can begin to work in you and on you and through you. Because here's what I'm going to tell you. Do you know what hangs in the balance when you go for the stew? You have no idea the complete picture that hangs in the balance. You don't. Now look, at my age and in my place in life, there are some things that I can see that if I go for the stew, it is catastrophic. I mean, how many pastors have you heard of they went for the stew? And look, I'm not even thinking of y'all first. You know who I'm thinking of first? My wife. You know what my wife is doing this service? She's leading worship in the sanctuary, okay? That's a partner in the gospel. I mean, God has, the Bible says, he who finds a wife finds what is good. Man, I found something good. I go for the stew one time. That thing is fractured. I have some beautiful little kids, beautiful. Do you know, JP, since the day we've opened, he gets up every Sunday morning on his own, dresses himself, brushes his teeth, gets his vitamins. He, he can't, he refuses to do it on school days, but on church days, he knows this. If he's not ready, when I, I'm walking out the door, I told him, and you're not coming with me. Every single Sunday, he gets himself up, he gets ready. He wants to ride with me here, to be here early, to go to, go to uh, Lion's Den in New Gen. He carries my backpack. He's like my little assistant. I know, it's incredible. It is incredible. I go for the stew one time. I can lose my moral authority with my son forever. You get that? I got this adorable little five-year-old daughter. And you know what she'll say to me first? Not just in response to me, but she'll just say it first. She'll say, Daddy, you're the best dad ever. I go, I know, baby. Say it again. Come on. Say it again. What do you want? Here's some candy, all right? I go for the stew one time. Once I can ruin my moral authority with my daughter. Do you see that? And then your relationship with Jesus is not dependent on me. It's not. But I go for the stew one time, and it jacks it up. 
you got to start making decisions. Do I want to be a part of a church led by somebody that went for the stew? You do. You got to explain a lot to, to new believers and, and our guests. So, so did he believe anything he was saying? I mean, honestly, how many, how many churches have just been decimated because the guy that had the mantle of leadership just one time went for the stew? So here, here's what I'm going to tell you. I refuse to go for the stew. And let me just, just jot this down, okay? If you like red stew a lot, do not go in tents where they're making red stew. That's brilliant. It's just true. That's why when it comes to some of the big things that have taken pastors down, I am fleeing. I am running from, from honeys and monies. That's what I am running from with everything I'm made of. You got it? So we got an elder board that has access to my entire financial situation, all that kind of stuff. And then I am a Pharisee when it comes to fleeing sexual immorality. Every woman on our staff knows you, you, can't, you can't have a meeting alone with me. Office doors are open. We put windows. You know how much it costs us to put windows in all our office doors? A lot. Worth it. I do not travel alone ever. Carly, my assistant, and I, we will have a meeting together with, a, with some other people over in the other side of town. She gets in her car, I get in my truck, and drive to the other side of town. See you there. And I've had people say, well, that's inefficient. So is divorce. Very inefficient. All right? And when people say, you're crazy. Call me crazy. I don't want to be normal. Normal is broke, divorced, and lonely. I'm not going for the stew, period. Too much hangs in the balance. And listen, I'm not unique. The same thing is true of you. It hangs in the balance. Because look what happens. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went away. And how long did it satisfy? Because in that moment, you know what he's thinking. I am fully and finally satisfied. That was so good, so worth it. For how long? Thanksgiving's coming up. You know that feeling you get when you're getting ready for Thanksgiving? It changes the kind of pants you wear to dinner, does it not? You put these on, you're like, uh-uh, I'm going to get some of it. Yeah, it is better. All right. You step up to the plate, and for the sake of the pilgrims, man, you eat till your belly button turns inside out. Praise God you should. I don't know why we don't fry turkeys every week. All right, they're amazing. Fry that thing up, eat, eat, eat. You are about to bust. You want dessert? Peach cop? Does it have ice cream? Mm-hmm. Well, another thing JP has told me, he taught me this. Did you know that your stomach has shelves? There's like a dinner shelf. And then there's a dessert shelf, and the two are unique. They don't affect one another. How could it be a lie? Sounds brilliant to me. And then if there's ice cream, it just fills in all around the gaps. That's how it works. So you eat and eat and eat and, until you are just, I mean, about to die, don't you? Sit back, and you're thinking, I do not have to eat again for a month. I mean, this is great. Then the trip to fan from the turkey kicks in. You fall out, wake up, Detroit's playing. By the time Dallas comes home, what do you do? You're back in the kitchen. Anybody want a turkey sandwich? Right? Because your appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. How long does it last when you go for the stew? Jacob gave Esau some bread and stew, and he ate it, and he drank it, and he rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It was over like that. The next 25 chapters and all throughout of human history, there's a sovereign legacy because of this decision. Now, You need to identify what's the stew in your life. And then let me give you a big fat warning. If you're not careful, you'll think this is a try harder message. And if that's the case, all you will do is delay your disobedience to Tuesday. And then you'll be right back in the stew. You see, 
this is not God is good, you're bad, try harder because there's a lot on the line. That's not, that's not the message. The message, here's the point, here's the point. The only way to satisfy the unlimited desires of your soul is with the unlimited grace and love of Jesus. You see, the fact that Jesus died on the cross outs us. It lets the whole world know, I love stew. I love it. Some of you still got it dripping off your face, okay? And I'm saying, you don't have to wipe it off before you come in here. You come here full of stew, but you got to bring it to Jesus. It's not about try harder. The message of the gospel is not that Jesus is a crutch. He's a stretcher. It's not try harder. It's actually give up. It's actually give up. You just get to that place where you just admit it. All right, Lord, I need help. I need help because I pray the prayers and I raise my hand and I sing the songs and I really do love you and I want you to be more than enough and every single time I see the stew, my appetite for it begins to grow and grow and grow. And it's not until you allow the power of the Holy Spirit in you to let you know that, that Jesus is more than enough. And do you have to do your part? Yes and amen. I've been studying the miracles in the New Testament. And it's hard for me to find a miracle that just happened to somebody and they didn't know it was happening. Like almost every single miracle that I can find in the Gospels is that somebody did a step of faith and then God joined them with a miracle. Like in John chapter 9, the man born blind, Jesus said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he goes and washes and then he can see. See how that works? Or the woman that was healed from bleeding, that she fought through the crowd and grabbed onto the hem of his garment and she was healed. So you do your part. As the great 20th century theologian, Coach Bull Lee, used to tell me, if you don't want to fall down, don't walk in slippery places. That's brilliant. But if you think it's up to you, then you don't get the gospel. The gospel is this. Pastor Britt talked about it last week. Man, you got an addiction, you got hang-ups, you got stew that's just eating your lunch, then you know what? Then you've got to lean into Jesus so that you can walk in the freedom that he's already purchased for you. Let me tell you this, every alcoholic in the room, okay? I know you've been to meetings where you say, hey, I'm whoever and I'm an alcoholic, and I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to take ownership for, for your part of it. I get that. I, get, I got nothing against meetings. I think it's great. Let me just, the gospel-centered version of that is this. Hey, my name is Joby, and I am a son of God with a birthright. And by the power of Jesus in me, I am learning to walk in the freedom that Christ has already purchased for me over my alcoholism. That's different. That's different. That means the stew does not control you. The Holy Spirit does. See, here, here's Jesus' invitation. You ready? Here's Jesus' invitation. It's in Matthew chapter 11, and it goes this way. He says, come to me, all, all, every single one of us. Come to me, all. Like all of you that struggle with the really bad stews that, that are public, and those of you that struggle with the stews that somehow we've said okay, but anybody struggling to go for the temporary instead of the eternal, every one of us, all of us are invited. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Like Esau, he was exhausted and about to die. If you feel exhausted and about to die, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Look, you don't pursue rest. You pursue Jesus and he gives you rest. That's different. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. 
You know who doesn't go for the stew? The people that have come to Jesus and they have rest for their soul. When your soul is at rest, I promise you, I promise you, your appetite for the stew begins to diminish. This is true. And so he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so here's what you do. Here's what you do. You, you resolve right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you're not going to go for what's temporary for the sake of what's eternal. And I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but man, you can lose some fellowship with God right now. You can have negative impacts on people that, that are important to you when we go for the stew. And because of Christ's death and resurrection, because of his imputed righteousness, righteousness for us, he's already purchased your freedom if you're in Christ. And the only time you go for the stew is when we have identity crisis. You've forgotten who you are and whose you are. And so for some of you, step one is you've got to become one of his. You've got to be adopted into his family. And for those of us that have, here's what you do. You've got to be honest about the stew. Like today in this place, you just got to bring it to him and say, God, I've got a porn problem. I got a money problem. I got a pride problem. Whatever it is. And God, I don't want to. I want to walk in the freedom that your grace is sufficient for me. So God, here I am. I'm laying it at your feet. And that you seek him and receive rest for your soul. A peace that will transcend all understanding. Because that focalism can actually work in a positive way. You get that? that? That thing where your eyes turn to something and everything else grows strangely dim. Well, when your eyes are at the cross, that the cross is an invitation for all of us with, with stew-stained faces are invited. Come on, I knew you were going to struggle with it. It's why I died on the cross for you. And even if you're in the midst of the struggle right now, the invitation is for you too, that you would come, that you would just come to him bowl full of stew and lay it at his feet and say Jesus you got to take it and you be honest with him and then when you get out of this place you got to find at least one other person that you're honest with and that that honesty and that relationship helps you be honest with Jesus helps you be honest with Jesus so it's not God's good you're bad try harder it's God's good and if you're a Christian God lives in you which makes you good and so you come to Jesus every and especially every single time that you're tempted to go for the stew instead of the eternal and in Christ you already have the victory now it's time to claim it and begin walking in it would you please stand and pray with me our good and gracious heavenly father lord God I know that um, I can do nothing to convict any soul that's only the job of the Holy Spirit so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in this place. God, I pray that you would convict. And, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is God's grace upon his children. That God only disciplines those that he loves. And so, Lord, I pray that, that we would be disciplined. God, that you would point out those things in our lives, those areas in our lives, when our appetites grow and grow and grow, and we look to satisfy them in ourselves instead of being satisfied in you. Lord, I pray for honesty. I pray for breakthroughs. I pray for, pray for freedom. I pray that this day, for many people in this room, God, this, this would be a turning point in their entire life, that they would know that this day, that the chains fell off once and for all. And from this day forward, they were able to walk in freedom because Christ was more than enough. God, I thank you for our souls that continuously yearn 
Lord, I pray for the wisdom and the eyes to see and the ears to hear that you and you alone can satisfy. We pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, listen, we respond around here, okay? To just hear that and do nothing is what a waste of time. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. I know God can work at your seat like he does at the front, but there's something about bringing it to the altar and laying it down and saying, God, here it is, here it is. I need you, and you're more than enough. We're going to join our voices together. If you're a regular here, bring your tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around or electronically or however you've been doing that. And then if God is stirring in you, then I invite you to come down to the altar and leave the stew there. Let's respond.